Okay, so we're going to go into embryogenesis and development. Excuse me. So, a secondary oocyte is ovulated from the follicle on approximately day 14 of the menstrual cycle, and the secondary oocyte travels into the fallopian tube where it can be fertilized up to 24 hours after ovulation. Fertilization usually occurs in the widest part of the fallopian tube, called the ampulla. When the sperm meets the secondary oocyte in the fallopian tube, it binds to the oocyte and releases acrosomal enzymes that enable the head of the sperm to penetrate the corona radiata and zona pellucida. The first sperm to come into direct contact with the secondary oocyte's cell membrane forms a tube-like structure known as the acrosomal apparatus, which extends to and penetrates the cell membrane. Its pronucleus may then freely enter the oocyte once meiosis II has come to completion. After penetration of the sperm through the cell membrane, the cortical reaction, a release of calcium ions, occurs. These, cal these calcium ions depolarize the membrane of the ovum, which serves two purposes. Depolarization prevents fertilization of the ovum by multiple sperm cells, and the increased calcium concentration increases the metabolic rate of the newly formed diploid zygote. The now depolarized and impenetrable membrane is called the fertilization membrane. Twinning can occur by two different mechanisms. Dizygotic or fraternal twins form from fertilization of two different eggs released during one ovulatory cycle by two different sperm. Each zygote will implant in the uterine wall and each develops its own placenta, chorion, and amnion. These structures are discussed later. Uh, if the zygotes implant closer together, the placentas may grow onto each other, and fraternal twins are no more genetically similar than any other pair of siblings. Monozygotic or identical twins form when a single zygote splits into two. Because the genetic material is identical, the genomes of the offspring will be two, and if, if division is incomplete, conjoined twins may result, where the two offspring are physically attached. Monozygotic twins can be classified by the number of structures they share, so monochorionic or monoamniotic share the same amnion and chorion. Monochorionic or diamniotic twins each have their own amnion but share the same chorion, and dichorionic diamniotic, diamniotic twins share... Each have their own amnions and chorions. So which type of twinning occurs as a result of when the separation occurred and as more gestational structures are shared, there are more ri risks as the fetuses grow and develop. So after fertilization of the fallopian tubes, the zygote must travel to the uterus for implantation. So if it arrives too late, there will be no longer an endometrium capable of supporting the embryo. And as it moves to the uterus for implantation, the zygote undergoes rapid mitotic cell divisions in a process called cleavage. The first cleavage officially creates an embryo as it nullifies one of the zygote's defining characteristic, which is unicellular unicellularity. Although several rounds of mitosis occur, the total size of the embryo remains unchanged during the first few divisions, and by dividing into progressively smaller cells, the cells increase two ratios, the nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio and the surface area to volume ratio, so the cells achieve increased area for gas and nutrient exchange relative to overall volume. There's two types of cleavage, so indeterminate and determinate. Indeterminate results in cells that can still develop into complete organisms, uh, and then determinate results in cells with fates that are already determined, so these cells are committed to differentiating into a certain type of cell. Several divisions later, the embryo becomes a solid mass of cells known as a morula. This term comes from the Latin word for mulberry, which may help us grasp what an embryo at this stage looks like. Once the morula is formed, it undergoes blastulation, which forms the blastula, a hollow ball of cells with a fluid-filled inner cavity known as the blastocole. The mammalian blastula is known as a blastocyst, and it consists of two noteworthy cell groups, the trophoblast and inner cell mass. The trophoblast cells surround the blastocole and give rise to the chorion and later the placenta, whereas the inner cell mass protrudes into the blastocole and gives rise to the organism itself. Uh, so the blastula is an embryo with a blasted-out cavity. 
The blastula moves through the fallopian tube to the uterus where it burrows into the endometrium and the trophoblast cells are specialized to create an interface between the maternal blood supply and the developing embryo. These trophoblastic cells give rise to the chorion, which is an extra embryonic membrane that develops into the placenta. The trophoblasts form chorionic villi, which are microscopic finger-like projections that penetrate the endometrium and as they develop into the placenta, they support maternal fetal gas exchange. The embryo is connected to the placenta by the umbilical cord, which consists of two arteries and one vein encased in the gelatinous substance. The vein carries freshly oxygenated blood rich with nutrients from the placenta to the embryo and the umbilical arteries carry deoxygenated blood and waste to the placenta for exchange. Until the placenta is functional, the embryo is supported by the yolk sac, which is also the site of early blood cell development. There's two other extraembryonic membranes that require discussion, so the Allen toys, which is involved in early fluid exchange between the embryo and the yolk sac. The umbilical cord is formed from remnants of the yolk sac and the Allen toy. The allantois is surrounded by the amnion, which is a thin, tough membrane filled with amniotic fluid, and this fluid serves as a shock absorber during pregnancy and lessens the impact of maternal motion on the developing embryo. And in addition to forming the placenta, the chorion also forms an outer membrane around the amnion and adding an additional uh, layer of protection. So once the cell mass implants, it can further begin developmental processes such as gastrulation and the generation of three distinct cell layers. So the early developmental processes... Um, comes from the study of other organisms with various degrees of similarity. So, let's see. So, imagine inflating a balloon and poking it with your finger. If you keep pushing, eventually the rubber from that side of the balloon would come into the contact with the other side, and if the two membranes could merge as occurs in development, this would create a tube through the middle of the balloon. In living things, the result of this process is called the gastrula. The membrane invagination into the blastocole is called the archenteron, which later develops into the gut. The opening of the archenteron is called the blastopore. In deuterostomes, such as humans, the blastopore develops into the anus, and in protostomes, it develops into the mouth. Eventually, some cells, some cells will also migrate into what remains of the blastocole. This establishes three layers of cell called the primary germ layers. So the outermost is the ectoderm. It gives rise to the integument, including the epidermis, hair, nails, and the epithelia of the nose, mouth, and lower anal canal. The lens of the eye services, nervous system, including adrenal medulla and inner ear, are also derived from ectoderm. The middle layer is the mesoderm. It develops several different systems, including the musculoskeletal, circulatory, and must, most of the excretory systems. It also gives rise to the gonads and the muscular and connective tissue layers of the digestive and respiratory systems and the adrenal cortex. And the innermost layer is the endoderm, and it forms the epithelial linings of the digestive and respiratory tracts, including the lungs, the pancreas, thyroid, bladder, and distal urinary tracts, as well as parts of the liver. So... How can cells with the same genes develop into such distinctly different cell types with highly specialized functions? So this is by selective transcription, so only the genes needed for that particular cell type are transcribed. Um, it's often related to the concept of induction, which is the ability of one group of cells to influence the fate of nearby cells, and this is mediated by chemical substances called inducers, which diffuse from the organizing cells to the responsive cells. These chemicals are responsible for processes such as the guidance of neuronal axons, and it also ensures the proximity of different cell types that work together within an organ. Once the three germ layers are formed, regulation or development of the nervous system can begin. So first, a rod of mesodermal cells known as the notochord form along the long axis of the organism like a primitive spine. The notochord induces a group of overlying ectodermal cells to slide inward to form neural folds, which surround a neural groove. The neural folds grow toward one another until they fuse into a neural tube, which gives rise to the central nervous system. And at the tip of the, each neural fold are neural crest cells, which migrate outward to form the peripheral nervous system, including the sensory ganglia autonomic ganglia, adrenal medulla, and Schwann cells, as well as specific cell types in other tissues. And then finally, ectodermal cells will migrate over the neural tube and crest to cover the rudimentary nervous system. 
So some problems, um, because this is a really sensitive time, the germ layers are forming and organogenesis is beginning, so teratogens may have a lot of effects. And these are substances that interfere with development, causing defects or even death of the developing embryo. Um, so the unique genetics of the embryo influences the effects of the teratogen, so the root of exposure, length of exposure, rate of placental placental transmission, and the exact identity of the teratogen will also affect the outcome, so including alcohol, prescription drugs, viruses, bacteria, and environmental chemicals are examples of teratogens. And then maternal health can also influence development, so um, for example, like diabetic women, uh, folic acid deficiency, so if you have overexposure to sugar, that can lead to a fetus that's too large and that suffers from hypoglycemia due to synthesizing very high levels of insulin to compensate. Um, folic acid deficiency may prevent complete closure of the neural tube, so spina bifida, and then it could be just varying, um, basically, effects. So, next thing we'll talk about is the mechanisms of development, so cell, cell specialization. Um, an adult is composed of approximately 37 trillion cells, and they're organized into tissues that form organs within organ systems, and each cell must perform a specialized function. So a cells in an, organ in, in an organ must be organized such that the organ can function properly. And how does that happen? So there's three stages. So first, the initial stage of cell specialization is specification. So the cell is reversibly designated as a specific cell type. This is followed by determination, which was previously defined as the commitment of a cell to a particular function in the future. Um, after determination, the cell is irreversibly committed to a specific lineage, and there's multiple pathways. So during cleavage, where the existing mRNA and protein in the parent cell has been asymmetrically distributed between the daughter cells, the presence of specific mRNA and protein molecules may result in determination. It can also occur due to secretion of specific molecules from nearby cells called morphogens, which may cause neighboring cells to follow a specific developmental pathway. Um, but basically, the cell has not actually yet produced what it needs to carry out the functions of that cell type. So that's the goal of differentiation. So um, after a cell's fate has been determined, the cell must begin to undertake changes that cause the cell to develop into the, the determined cell type. So in this includes changing the structure, function, and biochem of the cell, which is called differentiation. So cells that have not yet differentiated or give rise to other cells that will differentiate are known as stem cells. They exist in embryonic tissues and adult tissues. Um, the tissues of a particular stem cell can differentiate into are determined by its potency. So cells with the greatest potency are called totipotent and include embryonic stem cells. They can differentiate into any cell type, either in the fetus or in placental structures. After the 16 cell stage, the cells of the morula begin to differentiate into two groups, so the inner cell mass and the trophoblast. And after a few more tie cycles, these totipotent cells start to differentiate into the three germ layers. So at this stage, these cells are said to be pluripotent. They can differentiate into any cell type except for those found in the placental structures. And as they be continue to become more specialized, they are said to be multipotent, which can differentiate into multiple types of cells within a particular group. So um, potency is also a spectrum, and stem cells exist not only in embryos, but in adults who have stem cells that give rise to skin, blood, and the epithelial lining of the digestive tract. Um, stem cell research is big, so harvesting embryonic stem cells ultimately results in the just destruction of the embryo, but it's, these can be used to regenerate human tissues like the spinal cord and the heart. There's also immuno immunologic concerns, so transplantation of a different genetic makeup could evoke an immune response and resulting in rejection. And once implanted, pluripotent stem cells may not necessarily differentiate into the desired tissue and it could become cancerous. So... Basically, they use multipotent stem cells right now, which are pretty limited. 
and yeah. The potential advantages of this is like a stem cell can be taken from a patient from blood, bone marrow, or adipose tissue, induced to become a different tissue type, and then implanted. But there's this is risk reduced risk of rejection of foreign tissue, but it's challenging to induce differentiation. Um, so yeah. Next thing we'll talk about is cell to cell communication. So uh, the determination and differentiation of a cell depends on the location of the cell as well as the identity of the surrounding cells. So the developing cells get signals from organizing cells around it and may also secrete its own signaling molecules. Um, the cell that is induced is called a responder, so it's a responsive cell. And to be induced, a responder must be competent or able to respond to the inducing signal. Cell-to-cell -cell communication can occur via autocrine, paracrine, juxtacrine, or endocrine signals. Autocrine signals act on the same cell that secreted the signal in the first place. Paracrine acts on cells in the local area. Juxtacrine do not usually involve diffusion, but involve a cell directly stimulating receptors of an adjacent cell. And endocrine signals involve secreted hormones that travel through the bloodstream to a dist distant target tissue. So inducers are often growth factors, which are peptides that promote differentiation and mitosis in certain tissues. Most growth factors only function on specific cell types or in certain areas as determined by the competence of these cells, so they can code for particular tissues. Um, induction is not always a one-way pathway, so differentiation uh, of the lens then triggers the optic vesicle to form the optic cup, which ultimately becomes the retina. This is known as reciprocal development, so... Most tissues will be exposed to multiple inducers during the course of development. One of the main methods of signaling occurs via gradient uses. So morphogens are molecules that cause determination of cells diffused throughout the organism. And locations closer to the origin of the morphogen will be exposed to higher concentrations and further away will have less exposure. Um, multiple morphogens are secreted simultaneously, resulting in unique combinations of morphogen exposure, which can induce differentiation of specific cell types. So some morphogens include uh, transforming, transforming growth factor beta, sonic hedgehog, and epidermal growth factor. So then we're going to talk about cell migration. Um, you have to be able to disconnect from adjacent structures and migrate to the correct location. Uh, and then cell death, apoptosis or programmed cell death occurs at various times in development. So it can occur via apoptotic signals or pre-programming. And during the process, the cell undergoes changes in morphology and divides into many self-contained protrusions called apoptotic blebs, which can then be broken apart into apoptotic bodies and digested by other cells. So this allows recycling of materials. And because the blebs are contained by a membrane, this prevents the release of any harmful substances into the extracellular environment. And this is different from necrosis, which is a process of cell death where the cell dies as a result of injury. So internal substances can be leaked and cause irritation of nearby tissues or even generate some kind of big immune response. So next thing we'll talk about is regeneration. So regenerative capacity or the ability of an organism to regrow certain parts of the body varies from species to species. Um, when regeneration is required, these stem cells can then migrate to an appropriate part of the body to initiate regrowth. And there's complete regeneration in that the lost or damaged tissues are replaced with identical tissues. And then incomplete regeneration implies that the newly formed tissue is not identical in structure or function to the tissue that had been injured or lost. So humans really usually have incomplete regeneration. Uh, and then we're going to talk about senescence and aging. So senescence or biological aging can occur at the cellular and organismal level as these changes accumulate um, in both molecular and cellular structure. 
Uh, at the cellular level, senescence results in the failure of cells to divide after approximately 50 divisions in vitro, and this may be due to shortened telomeres or the ends of chromosomes. They reduce the loss of genetic information um, from the ends of chromosomes and help prevent the DNA from unraveling, and their high concentration of guanine and cytosine enables telomeres to not off the end of the chromosomes. They're difficult to replicate, so they shorten during each round of DNA synthesis, and when they eventually become too short and the cell is no longer able to replicate, um, basically... That's what could happen. And some cells will express an enzyme known as telom telomerase, um, which is a reverse transcriptase that is able to synthesize the ends of chromosomes, preventing senescence, and it allows cells to divide indefinitely and may play a role in the survival of cancer cells. So aging is pretty complex. Um, but yeah. So then we'll talk about fetal circulation uh, and then gestation and birth, and those will be our last two topics. So. The, it's pretty crucial that maternal and fetal blood don't mix because they may be different blood types. So the simplest method to move nutrients and waste is by diffusion, which requires a gradient, which implies that there's a higher partial pressure of oxygen in maternal blood than in fetal blood. And fetal blood cells have uh, fetal hemoglobin, which has a greater affinity for oxygen than maternal uh, hemoglobin. This assists with the transfer and retention of oxygen into the fetal circulatory system and waste material and carbon dioxide move in the opposite direction. Okay. So, placental barrier serves as another function, so immunity, so the fetus is immunologically naive because it has not been exposed to any pathogens, but accidental exposure can happen, so the crossing of antibodies across the placental membrane serves as a protective, fun protective function, and the placenta also qualifies as an endocrine organ because it produces progesterone, estrogen, and human chorionic gonadotropin, which are essential for maintaining pregnancy. Um, so, the... Umbilical arteries carry blood away from the fetus toward the placenta, and the umbilical vein carries blood toward the fetus from the placenta. Oxygenation occurs at the placenta rather than in the fetal lung, so the umbilical arteries can carry deoxygenated blood, and the umbilical vein carries oxygenated blood. Some key differences, so the lungs and liver both um, don't serve significant functions before birth. Gas exchange doesn't occur at the lungs, but at the placenta. Detox and metabolism are controlled by the mother's liver, and nutrient and waste exchange occurs at the placenta as well. The fetus doesn't really depend on its own blood, lungs, and liver, and they're underdeveloped and sensitive to the high blood pressures that they will receive in postnatal life, so there's three shunts to actively direct blood away from these organs while they develop. So two different shunts are used to reroute blood from the lungs. So the first is the foramen ovale, is a one-way valve that connects the right atrium to the left atrium, which allows blood entering the right atrium from the inferior vena cava to flow into the left atrium instead of the right ventricle, and thereby be pumped through the aorta into systemic circulation directly. Um, unlike in adult circulation, the right side of the heart is at a higher pressure in the developing fetus on the left side, which pushes blood through the opening, and after birth, this pressure differential reverses, shutting the foramen ovale. And then second, the ductus arteriosus shunts leftover blood from the pulmonary artery to the aorta. And again, the pressure differential between the right and left sides of the heart pushes blood through this opening and into systemic circulation. The liver is bypassed via the ductus venosus, which shunts blood returning from the placenta via the umbilical vein directly into the inferior vena cava. And the liver will receive some blood supply from smaller hepatic arteries in the systemic circulation. And then we'll end with um, gestation and birth. So it lasts about 280, 280 days, which are divided into three trimesters. So 
The major organs first develop during the first few weeks. The heart begins to be at approximately 22 days, and soon afterwards, the eyes, gonads, limbs, and liver start to form. By five, we five weeks, the embryo is 10 millimeters, and by week six, it's 15. The cartilaginous skeleton begins to harden into bone by the seventh week. By the eighth week, um, most of the organs have formed, and the brain is fairly developed, and the embryo, embryo becomes a fetus, and at the end of the third month, the fetus is about nine centimeters long. So during the second trimester, the fetus undergoes a tremendous amount of growth. It begins to move within the amniotic fluid, and its face has a human appearance, and the toes and fingers elongate. And by six months, the fetus measures 30 to 50, 30 to 36 centimeters long. Sorry. And the seventh and eighth months are characterized by continued rapid growth and further brain development. Antibodies are transported by highly selective active transport from mother to fetus for protection against foreign agents in preparation for life outside the womb. Um, it's highest in the ninth month just before birth, and the growth rate slows, and the fetus becomes less active, and it has less room to move around. And then birth, so vaginal childbirth or parturition, is accomplished by rhythmic contractions of uterine smooth muscle, con coordinated by prostaglandins and the peptide hormone oxytocin. Birth has three basic phases, so the first, the cervix will thin out, and the amniotic sac will rupture, which is the water breaking, and then the strong uterine contractions result in the birth of the fetus, and then the placenta and umbilical cord are expelled, which is the afterbirth. Okay, so we'll go into our concept summary. So fertilization is the joining of a sperm and an ovum occurring in the ampulla of the fallopian tube. The sperm uses acrosomal enzymes to penetrate the corona radiata and zona pellucida. Once it contacts the oocyte's plasma membrane, the sperm establishes the acrosomal apparatus and injects its pronucleus. And when the first sperm penetrates it, it causes a release a of calcium ions, which prevents additional sperm from fertilizing the egg and increases the metabolic rate of the di resulting diploid zygote, which is the cortical reaction. Fraternal or dizygotic twins result from the fertilization of two eggs by two different sperm, and identical or monozygotic twins is the splitting of a zygote in two, and they can be classified from, by the placental structures they share, so mono versus diamniotic and mono versus dichorionic. Cleavage result refers to the early division of cells in the embryo. These mitotic divisions result in a larger number of smaller cells as the overall volume does not change. The zygote becomes an embryo after the first cleavage because it's no longer unicellular and indeterminate cleavage results in cells that are capable of becoming any cell, while determinate results in cells that are committed to differentiating into a specific cell type. The morula is a solid mass of cells seen in early development. The blastula or blastocyst has a fluid full center called the blastocole and has two different structures, so the trophoblast, which becomes placenta, and the inner cell mass, which becomes a developing organism. The blastula implants in the endometrial lining and forms the placenta. The chorion contains chorionic villi, which penetrate the endometrium and create the interface between maternal and fetal blood. And before the placenta is established, the embryo is supported by the yolk sac. The allantois is involved in early fluid exchange between the embryo and the yolk sac. The amniotic lies just inside the chorion and produces amniotic fluid and the developing organism is connected to the placenta via the umbilical cord. During gastrulation, the archenteron is formed with a blastopore at the end. As the archenteron groans through the blastocole, it contacts the opposite side, establishing three germ layers. The ectoderm is the epidermis, hair, nails, and the epithelia of the nose, mouth, and anal canal, and the nervous system, and the adrenal medulla, and the lens of the eye. The mesoderm becomes much of the musculoskeletal, circulatory, and excretory systems. It gives rise to the gonads and the muscular and connective tissue layers of the digestive and respiratory systems, as well as the adrenal cortex. And the endoderm becomes the epithelial linings of the respiratory and digestive tracts and parts of the pancreas, thyroid, bladder, and distal urinary tracts. 
Neurulation or development of the nervous system begins after the formation of the three derm layers. So the nodal cord induces a group of overlying ectodermal cells to form neural, neural folds surrounding a neural groove. The neural folds fuse to form the neural tube, which becomes the central nervous system, and the tip of each neural fold contains neural crest cells, which become the peripheral nervous system. So sensory ganglia, autonomic ganglia, adrenal medulla, and serran cells, as well as specific cell types and other tissues. Teratogens are substances that interfere with development, causing defects or even death of the developing embryo, and they include alcohol, prescription drugs, viruses, bacteria, and environmental chemicals. And maternal conditions can also affect development like diabetes, increased fetal size, and hypoglycemia after birth, and folic acid deficiency via neural tube defects. Cell specialization occurs as a result of determination and differentiation, so determination is the commitment to a specific cell lineage which may be accomplished by uneven segregation of cellular material during mitosis or with morphogens which promote development down a specific cell line. To respond to a specific morphogen, a cell must have competency, and then differentiation refers to the changes the cell undergoes due to selective transcription to take on characteristics appropriate to its cell line. Stem cells are classified Stem cells are cells that are capable of developing into various cell types and are classified by potency. So totipotent is all cell types, including the germ layers and placental structures. Pluripotent is all three of the germ layers and their derivatives. And then multipotent is only a specific subset of cell types. And then cells can communicate through a number of different signaling methods. So an inducer releases factors to promote the differentiation of a competent responder. Autocrine signals act on the same cell that released the signal. Paracrine is on local cells. Juxtacrine is through direct stimulation of adjacent cells. And endocrine signals act on distant tissues after traveling through the bloodstream. These are often growth factors, which are peptides that promote differentiation and mitosis in certain tissues. And if two tissues both induce further differentiation in each other, this is a reciprocal induction, and signaling often occurs through gradients. And cells may need to migrate to, their, to arrive at their correct location. Apoptosis is programmed cell death via the formation of apoptotic blebs that can subsequently be absorbed and digested by other cells. It can be used for sculpting certain anatomical structures, like removing the webbing between digits. Regenerative capacity is the ability of an organism to regrow certain parts of the body. The liver has high regenerative capacity, while the heart has low regenerative capacity. Senescence is the result of multiple molecular and metabolic processes, um, so most notably the shortening of telomeres during cell division. And then with fetal, circu fetal circulation, nutrient, gas, and waste exchange occurs at the placenta, so oxygen and CO2 are passively exchanged due to concentration gradients. Fetal hemoglobin has a higher affinity for oxygen than adult hemoglobin, and this assists in the transfer and retention of oxygen into the fetal circulatory system. The placental barrier serves as immune protection against many pathogens, and antibodies are transferred from mother to child. The placenta serves endocrine functions like secreting estrogen, progesterone, and human chorionic gonadotropin. The umbilical arteries carry deoxygenated blood from fetus to placenta, and umbilical vein carries oxygenated blood from the placenta back to the fetus. And the fetal circulatory system differs from its adult version by having three shunts. There's the foramen ovale, which connects the right atrium to the left atrium, bypassing the lungs. The ductus arteriosus connects the pulmonary artery to the aorta, bypassing the lungs. And then the ductus venosus connects the umbilical vein to the inferior vena cava, bypassing the liver. And finally, gestation and birth. So in the first trimester, organogenesis occurs, so development of heart, eyes, gonads, limbs, liver, and brain. In the second trimester, tremendous growth occurs, movement begins, and the face becomes human, and the digits elongate. And then the third trimester, rapid growth and brain brain development continue and there is transfer of antibodies to the fetus. And then during birth, the cervix thins out and the amniotic sac ruptures, the uterine contractions coordinated by prostaglandins and oxytocin result in birth of the fetus, and finally the placenta and umbilical cord are expelled. So next time we'll talk about the nervous system and I'll see you there.